Hi, everyone. I'm Stephen Perkins, the editor-in-chief of the Outset Network, and I'm so happy that you've chosen to join me on this week's episode of my podcast. This is the show where I talk to people within our movement, and we get to know a little more about them. We, we dive very so slightly into politics, but mostly we talk about who they are, how they were raised, their favorite foods, their favorite color, awkward first date questions. Not really, but sometimes. This week, I'm ecstatic to have Tex Fisher on the show. Tex uh, is best described as a, a hat aficionado, uh, a hater of Taylor Swift, and a hater of the United States Postal Service. But perhaps more importantly, he is a libertarian activist and he really is spreading the message that free markets work and limited government is the best type of government or lack of government. Anyways, he's a really cool person to talk to. I enjoyed this episode and I hope you did too. If you do, please share it with the people that know and like you or pretend to like you on social media. Uh, that would really help us out a lot here on the network and on the show. And um, and it just it's good for the whole community to, to share things. I'm about to get off topic. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Tex Fisher. Tex, thank you so much for being on my show. Well, thank you for having me. How have you been lately? I've been not too bad. I have to go to Michigan, Michigan tomorrow, and that's never a pleasant experience. But that's considering that, I'm doing pretty well. Well, it's, not, it, it's unpleasant, but you also live in the Midwest. Right, which is the greatest region in the country. But Michigan is just sort of like the neglected stepchild that nobody really wants to claim. What's your reason for liking the Midwest? Because, you know, it's flyover country uh, right. for, in my opinion, a very good reason. <laughs> well, I like the Midwest. I mean, I like having four seasons. Sometimes you can have four seasons in the span of a week, which is always nice. Keeps you on your toes. Cost of living is low. People tend to be pretty genuine and down to earth, unlike, you know, other parts of the country like Maryland or you know, Washington, D.C. or New York or the entire Northeast. Um, and it's just it's really hard to quantify the value of something being home. But Midwest is definitely home to be more specifically Ohio, the greatest state in the union. <laughs> well, that's fair. You can't, I can't argue with it being your home. But I will right. say everything else also describes <laughs> Texas. So four yeah. seasons, really? Like we, hurricane, drought and tornado. Yep, and exactly. Like we, uh, okay. we it was beautiful yesterday. We have rain today. It was cold last week. Now it's warm. It's we have it all. Um, Great. So I, I want to ask just to, to get kind of get to know you better and, and your um, your background. Um, and you talk about Ohio being home. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what, what was your childhood like? Um, where specifically in Ohio, actually, were you raised? Uh, I've lived in Youngstown, Ohio, which is um, right along the Pennsylvania border, pretty much dead center between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Um, for almost my entire life. There was a brief like one year when I was very, very young that I lived in Maryland. Um, don't remember much, but I do remember not liking it. Um, so Youngstown's been my home for pretty much my entire life. So um, what was that childhood like? Um, well, my, my dad is a former teacher. My mom is a stay at home mom. Um, so it was a pretty, you know, uneventful standard childhood. We didn't necessarily have a whole lot at times during my life, but we always made it by and, um, can't really complain about much. Were your parents uh, Were your parents political at all? Um, not really. I mean, they both they both pay attention. They both never miss an election. But they're not. I wouldn't really consider them political people. Uh, if I try and talk to them about something, a lot of it 
will go over their heads or they just won't care. So, <laughs> um, I would say they're, they're, they're pretty average, um, average person's, um, I guess political attention span. So, you know, they pay attention, they watch Fox news a lot. Um, and you know, they, they vote twice a year, every year. Sure. What was, uh, so what was the spark that got you interested in politics? Um, see my, when I was in school, my favorite subject was always history, specifically U S history. Um, I always found that, you know, I, I was always taught it was a blessing to, to be born and to live in the United States. And I, I really think I've carried that with me my entire life. I, I believe we're the, the greatest country on earth. So I've always been fascinated by our history. Um, and I, I think I started listening to Glenn Beck on the radio by accident because we had a, um, I have a hockey net out in, out in my garage and I was just shooting around in that to kill time when I was younger. And I turned the radio on and started listening to Glenn Beck and um, didn't really care much for the other radio people that would come on. But I would say he really sparked my interest. I started reading a couple of his books. Um, I read a book about how awful FDR was. And I would, I think that book was called New Deal or Raw Deal. I read that a long time ago. And that was probably the the book that pushed me over the edge to really um, pursue and to learn more. is because I really found FDR to be an incredibly dislikable individual. As I think most reasonable people would. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when, obviously, you know, the Glenn Beck thing, I think, is uh, is relatable to a lot of people our age because the way I described it whenever I was talking with Caleb Franz is that um, he made it, he, he, he made the political talk kind of more interesting and more engaging. Um, I think the big question is, you know, when you think about his fashion, specifically his hats, yes. how would you describe that your life has been influenced by his, uh, his fashion sense? Um, I would say a great deal. I mean, I'm currently wearing some bright green pants, which is very Glenn <laughs> to do. Um, his, his foray into hats really did inspire me to get into hats. I currently only, um, only own one, but it was one that he personally complimented at CPAC, uh, 2016, <laughs> which was one of the higher points of my life. Sure. Um, completely honest. Um, but yeah, he, he's definitely influenced me in, in a lot of ways. Um, fashion, um, policy as well. I mean, he was probably the first, the first real step I took towards more of a libertarian ideology compared to the traditional conservative ideology. My parents, uh, my parents have was, um, he actually said something about legalizing heroin, which at the time I thought was insane, but the way he explained it really started to make me think and, um, realize that if we're going to be about I mean, heroin's probably a bad example for that. I sound like, you know, someone with the Libertarian Party. No, you Party. start strong. But, start with the big Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but just the way he explained that really made me think. And it's not, I mean, I'm not running around advocating that we should legalize heroin necessarily. Um, but the way he explained that rather extreme example really started to make me think and, and put me on the on the path towards my, my ideology today of very aggressive um, libertarianism. So as that sparked your interest, what were some of the things that um, that you went to to kind of build that political education? You mentioned already one of those books, but what were some other sources that influenced you or inspired you um, and, and kind of developed your ideology? Uh, I, I started reading a lot of books. I think there was a period of about a year where I would go through um, pretty much a book a week. Uh, I learned a lot from that. I you know started off with like the weaker stuff, like the, um, I can't even remember the title of it at this point, one of Hannity's books. And I remember reading that and not learning a whole lot and just being kind of annoyed. So I started going in a different direction. Um, 
I discovered the Foundation for Economic Education, and I pretty much ordered all of their stuff, um, sort of binge ordered it at one point. And that was that was probably the most educational book I set of books that I ended up reading that really um, informed me and shaped me, particularly on the merits of free markets. And um, that's one of my, I guess, the issues I'm most passionate about, in addition to like abolishing the, the postal service, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, <laughs> I, I would say those, anything by the Foundation for Economic Education is highly recommended by me. Um, I don't think they've published anything I've necessarily disagreed with of all the things that I've read. And they, they make very complex um, arguments in favor of free markets and, and constitutionally restrained government um, in a way that a lot of people can relate to. And somebody with maybe not the greatest understanding of politics at a young age like myself um, could really grasp and learn and grow from. So what was the first thing that one of the first things you did um, in terms of activism work? How did you get into the game, if you will? Um, it was in 2012. So I was very, very closely following the election from probably a year or so before, right when the first candidate started announcing. Um, and at the time, very regrettably, um, I will admit that I, I was supporting Rick Santorum, which Ooh, in hindsight was same. one of the, yeah, anyway, yeah, say, okay, at least I'm not the only one who made that mistake. Um, but then once that, that whole primary was settled, um, I volunteered with my local Republican party to, um, do phone calls for Mitt Romney. And that eventually morphed into knocking on doors. Um, I spent so many hours doing that pretty much every day, um, for one or two hours during the week. Um, I would be spending at the, the county victory center, um, whether it be making phone calls. And once, once September hit, I think I started knocking on doors. Um, and that was a very eye-opening experience. We experienced a lot of rejection, especially um, campaigning for Mitt Romney in my very blue-collar Union Democrat um, area was not the most pleasant experience. But um, I think it's it was necessary for me to sort of learn to, I guess, toughen up and deal with people rejecting what you're, I mean, in essence, you're selling, you're selling a candidate, you're not selling a product. Um, it's much more polarizing to sell a political candidate uh, than it is to sell like vacuum cleaners or whatever. So I, uh, I think that was, that was really beneficial to me just to learn to deal with people not buying what you're selling, so to speak. Um, but I think all in all, I did about 30 or 40,000 phone calls um, and another five or so thousand doors knocked on. So that was pretty much my entire life for, uh, the latter half of 2012 and that really um that really sold me on this this being something i want to be a part of my life long term and i really enjoyed it um it was difficult but um i i did really enjoy it and it really put me on the path where i am right to, right right now when you watch the mitt documentary on netflix do you cry every time uh i've only watched it twice I allegedly have cried during the first time and nobody can report it on the second time because, uh, I watch it alone. So sure. That's all I can say on that. <laughs> um, well, no, I, I think your reflection on like door knocking and having that rejection is, is interesting <laughs> because, well, there, and, and there's a lot of people who start out in politics and they don't do the phone calls or the door knocking. And so they're not familiar with that part. But I think that, um, as, as unpleasant as those activities are, uh, right. they, they definitely build you up and, and kind of prepare you for, um, for other parts of activism that, I mean, it's, it's just a lot of rejection and, and you yeah, kind of, it really you know, get is. used to it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually thankful that I live where I live and was able to get those experiences really early on just because, I mean, if I live somewhere and 
a, a few counties to the south of me where everyone's a Republican. Um, it would have been a much different experience. I wouldn't have wouldn't have learned as much. And um, I mean, there were times I had spent 15, 20 minutes just debating with these, you know, retired people on <laughs> um, what's the word I'm looking for? Retirement, um, retired people and like um, housing developments. And I, you know, I'm supposed to hit like 15 houses on the street. I spent half an hour at one and then like frantically get through the rest just so I can finish the walkbook by the end of the day. Um, and it, it really did. It taught me a lot to to sort of um, I don't want to say pander, but it taught me to um, tailor my arguments towards people of specific um, with specific ideas. Like if I walk up to somebody, if their house has like an Obama sign in the yard, I'm obviously not expecting a whole lot out of it. But um, some people are, you know, some people will slam the door on you or threaten to call the cops. And some people will just stand there and have a a good discussion with you, which is, um, I think that was really beneficial for me. I enjoyed it. I was not very good at, at arguing my, um, my beliefs before that, just because my involvement previously had been, you know, talking on the phone. And most of the time people on the phone will just hang up on you if they right. don't want to hear what you're saying. Um, and then reading books and listening to like listening to the radio or watching, you know, stuff on TV. So I didn't have a whole lot of experience in actually defending what I believed or giving a reason why I believe what I, what I believe. Because when you're confronted with like, okay, you believe this, but why do you believe it? It's if you're not prepared for that, then you're just like, oh, I don't know. I've just always believed it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we have a lot of people prominent in the movement today that just sort of, you know, like, oh, I believe X, Y, and Z. But then if you press them on that, they just recycle like a talking point or they say something, you know, out of a, the same thing they say to every question. Um, and it's just, I think it's, it does a disservice to our, to our country and especially to our political discourse. Um, when people don't know how to defend their beliefs or explain to you why they believe something in the first place. Absolutely. I think part of that is, is just having the educational side of it. And what I've seen is that there seems to be less of a, of, of a focus on developing the, the why behind your right. Like it, there's a lot of young conservatives who um, they're, they're very good. They're getting engaged online and they're doing this activism, but um there's not always the component of, of having that uh, kind of informed background behind it. Mm -hmm. So w when you, because now you work with how many organizations, is it just the one? Uh, yes. Well, I do a lot of things. Um, I'm involved in my local Republican party. Um, I mean, I, I do a lot of things, but as far as, as um, like my job, I, right now I just work for, uh, for Turning Point USA. Yeah. So tell me about that experience on college campuses. It's a little different than talking to elderly people door to door. Uh, you're now talking to people your own age. Um, right. I'm guessing Ohio is like the rest of the nation, liberal uh, college campuses. Um, so what is that experience like? Um, no, I. it's something I really do enjoy. And um, in addition to um, all the, the things I learned that we've explained before, or we've gone over before, um, with the door knocking and, and phone calls, I, I think, um, I've learned to, to sort of have fun with people who, um, you know, when you're, when you're getting rejected nonstop, you sort of have to learn to, to make fun of it and, um, not so much to enjoy it, but to, to learn how to deal with it so it doesn't affect you and you can't take it personally. And I, if I had not learned that those lessons, um, from the door knocking, I would not have lasted very long on a college campus. Um, so the area I cover is um, the northern half of Ohio, um, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. So it's 
Um, all three states, interestingly enough, went for went for Trump. So it's um, the the political climate is definitely changing in like the more Rust Belt oriented areas, Michigan, um, you know, Cleveland, Akron, Youngstown, Pittsburgh. There's definitely there's a noticeable difference um, just in the day to day. I mean, I when you drive to Pittsburgh in 2012, I would see just like massive Obama signs on the side of the turnpike left and right. And then last year when I was driving down there, all I saw were Trump signs. So it's mm. it was remarkable in that sense. But that hasn't really translated all that much onto college campuses. If anything, I think it's had the opposite effect and really um, sort of united, not to say the opposition um, as an opposition to Trump, but just, I guess, the, the progressive movement on college campuses has really been strengthened and united in opposition to, um, to President Trump, which makes things a little bit harder for conservatives. But, um, you know, we could get into the whole discussion of whether the president is actually a conservative, which um, I would I would veer on the side that he is not. But um, that you know what I think and what reality are as far as people's perception are usually not the same thing. So um, yeah, it's it's a lot of radical. You wouldn't think it, but I deal with a lot of communists. Like that's something I didn't really think existed until I started going on campuses every day. Um, I mean, some some campuses legitimately have very organized active like communist clubs there's one at cleveland state who um they're a gang of anarcho-communists which is something i've really had trouble understanding <laughs> but that's that's probably the most interesting thing that i encounter is like anarchists who are also communists marxist communists who are also anarchists which really um just baffles me sure uh, i think i probably got a little bit off topic of what your original question was but no, that's perfectly fine um, okay. it, but I, I mean, I, I saw that whenever I did activism on a college campus too, there was someone, um, just one person, but he was handing out copies of the communist <laughs> manifesto. Uh, and I just thought like, what, what does your life look like that? That's what you do in your free time. You're handing out copies of the communist manifesto. But so going back a little bit to kind of the guilt by association, if you will. Um, so I saw this a lot with college Republicans because the challenge was you have Republican in the name. You can't hide from the fact and whoever the nominee is, people will automatically assume they'll automatically make their assumptions there um, with something that is not, you know, tied back to the Republican Party with something that is simply conservative or pro-capitalism where it doesn't have that party label to it. I imagine you still have a hard time with people who just make the assumption, oh, conservative, right wing, capitalism, those things are, are represented by the Republican president. And, and, you know, don't have to get too much into your thoughts on them or anything. But um, what are some of the things that you've been experiencing in terms of people kind of making those assumptions? And is there even a, I guess, an avenue for reaching out to people who automatically kind of go down that route um yeah what one of the things which initially attracted me to turning point usa was um that we our goal is to um sort of change hearts and minds of of our generation specifically on campuses on sort of not republican values but values republicans are supposed to are traditionally associated with but mm -hmm. i think they've done a terrible job of number one even upholding those and number two um, let alone espousing them. I mean, they do a horrible job of that. Um, so what I, I think it was really necessary and still is to have groups like Turning Point or Young Americans for Liberty to, to sort of promote these principles on campuses without the party label outside of the party infrastructure, because there are so many, especially amongst libertarians. I mean, their college campuses are full of 
dissatisfied libertarians who, um, I mean, they may have voted Republican in the past, or they may come from a Republican background, rather, um, but they're just sort of disgusted with our, our two-party system, and especially with the Republican Party, which is supposed to be the party of you know, free markets, limited government, and the Constitution, um, and it's done a horrible job of um, of holding up those values that they were elected to sort of promote. Um, so I think it's really important to have organizations not tied to the party necessarily um, to promote those values because the party's done a terrible job of it. Um, and it, it is hard because, you know, when you say the word capitalism, unfortunately now people start to think of Donald Trump or like, especially which something that really drives me crazy is while the campaign was ongoing, um, we start talking about capitalism and we get so many people like, Oh no, capitalism, you know, capitalism is terrible. Donald Trump uses capital. Like, I've actually, somebody said to me, Donald Trump uses capitalism through eminent domain, um, to take old lady houses and turn them into parking lots for his casinos, which was like, no, oh, no, that's not, that's not how it is. That's not capitalism. Um, so, you know, capitalism really has become sort of a, a dirty word and it's used to, to describe Trump a lot. Um, I think that's to the detriment of, I guess, of the term. Um, so when you talk about free markets or capitalism, a lot of people have the misconceptions that it's sort of crony capitalism or, you know, Walmart with their hundreds or how many of our lobbyists they employ now, um, working to sort of twist around like the Americans with Disabilities Act to give them a competitive advantage over Target or Dollar General or what have you. Um, so I think that's, that's the biggest thing we run into. And Trump has certainly not helped that. Um, it, it's definitely reinvigorated a certain um, segment of the college student population just because they're, they're newly emboldened because they have a, a, a president who supposedly um, shares their values, but that's a whole other discussion we can have, um, which I don't want to get into too much. But um, I think it's been it's been a bit of both. It's it's been helpful um, with some, I guess, dissatisfied more like principled principled types that are looking to join organizations outside of um, outside of maybe college Republicans or anything with the. I guess Republican label attached to it because of President Trump, and um, gosh, I really lost track of where I was going with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's been a it's been a bit of both. It's I think it's helped. It's re-energized some some students, but it's also hurt um, the students that were maybe on the fence before um, are are being pushed, I guess, away from our from conservatism, from libertarianism, whatever um, whatever you want to align yourself with because of how polarizing. Um, President Trump is and his association with conservatism I don't think will be beneficial for the movement in the long term. So for people who feel like this is a, a challenging time to go out and advocate for these values because of the problems that, that you spoke about I mean what would your advice be for those people wanting to get involved because my inclination would be to say well just because there's a couple of, of high-profile people ruining it for you doesn't mean that you shouldn't get out and try to set the record straight. But I'm curious, since you work with student activists every day, um, what is some of the advice that you've given or, or that you would give? Oh, I would definitely say, I mean, you, you got to go out and do it. If you feel strongly about something, don't let whatever the prevailing political climate is discourage you. I mean, it, it's, it's very easy to get discouraged by that, too. If you're a, a more anti-Trump um, type libertarian student, you might be um, really down in the dumps because, A, we have a, a president who um, a lot of your fellow libertarians sort of fell for and embraced, um, despite not really sharing any values with you. Um, 
but you, you know, you still have to do it. If you believe strongly in something, you shouldn't let circumstances or, um, or just really people's attitudes dissuade you from doing what you believe in. Um, I mean, you're going to deal with adversity all the time in the political climate, whether it be, um, you know, president, Republican president, Democratic president. I mean, it wasn't easy when, when George Bush was president, if you were a college Republican, especially near the end. But I mean, to their credit, there were thousands of, of students out there still promoting the, the Republican brand and conservatism. Mm-hmm. Um, but you should, if you believe strongly in something, you should never let circumstances dissuade you. So you talk about feeling strongly about something. What is the personal why behind your work? What, what is it that fuels your activism? Um, something that's, that's really important to me is, um, just, just the, the general idea of America, of of a land where individuals can do what they want, the way they want it and, you know, worship whichever God they, they desire and own an AR-15 or, you know, whatever it may be, just, just the general idea that you as an individual are, are sovereign and you should be able to do what you want, however you want to do it. You should be able to spend your money however you want, um. And as long as you're not hurting anybody else, you should be left to do it. And I think that's that's a pretty uniquely American idea, um, which has manifested itself into this this great country we have. Which, but that idea has slowly been chipped away. I would say over the past hundred or so years, um, you could really say it started with um, Teddy Roosevelt. More, if you want to get really into it, I would say um, Woodrow Wilson was really the first radical step towards the more collectivist. Um, collectivist school of thought so to speak which has really um fueled the progressive movement but i very strongly believe people should be able to do what they want think what they want say what they want and um that's that's why i do this because like our generation specifically i think a lot of them are um sort of lost in this idea of like you're they view themselves more as a collective instead of as an individual which i think is is detrimental um to our country as a whole, especially because then you get into the whole like entitlement, like this whole, f- the, the free college thing just drives me nuts. Um, it's, it's, it sounds like I a great know. deal though, tax. I mean, free. Yeah, I'm, yeah I'm sure it does. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I never went to college. I am not a big fan of college, but um, you know, if you want to go to college, I think you have every right to do so. You should just pay for it yourself. Um, I don't think it's my responsibility to pay for your college Radical. or your car or yeah. Yeah. I know. Very, very edgy in that regard. <laughs> Um, but just to get back to it, I, I strongly believe that people should be able to do what they want and live how they want. Um, and as long as they're not hurting anybody else that they should, um, they should be free to do that. And I think that's what really fuels most of my, my passion for this issue is because that's, it has been eroded. It's continuing to be eroded. I mean, little things like, you know, speed cameras, like those drive me nuts. Like I should be able to drive for what I want. You know, if you want to give me a ticket, then make the effort and pull me over. Don't just, you know, point a camera out the window and then mail me a ticket. Um, but again, that gets into the whole like roads thing, which I don't want to get into, but <laughs> so what, I mean, what, if, what if one of the ways that I want to spend my money is by, uh, um, sending something through the post service. What is your, beef? <laughs> what is my beef? Um, well, if the postal service was a, a private business forced to, to play by the same rules as everyone else, you'd be more than happy. You'd be more than welcome to do that. And I wouldn't have any problem with it. However, the Postal Service is a um, it's sort of like the worst of both worlds as far as uh, a private corporation and a government entity, because um, while they technically do function um, as a private entity, they don't get any direct um, like taxpayer funding. 
which advocates for the Postal Service will always throw out there whenever I tell them, like, that's not true. Like, oh, we don't get any direct taxpayer funding. Yes, that is true, technically speaking. But if you count the $18 billion in subsidies they get every year, um, coupled with the fact that they get they essentially get bailouts every year because they're five billion dollars in the red every single year, despite having 18 billion in subsidies and a legal monopoly on first class mail delivery, which is the bulk of their business. Um, I mean, I just think that that shouldn't exist. Um, it's it's unfair competition. We're supposed to be. Um, I say we. I mean, just free marketeers in general are. We tend to be against monopolies, especially government granted monopolies, which is exactly what the post, postal service is. Um, but you know, if you want if you want to send something via postal service, then go ahead. But just realize you're destroying America by doing it. <laughs> That's the the title of this episode. We just nailed it. <laughs> Uh, no, what what I find like the the thing that I hate about the postal service really comes down to when I open my mailbox and it's all these advertisements and it comes from the fact that the, like American citizens are not the customer of the postal service. Advertisers and direct mailers are the real customers of the postal service. Like they they pay to have access to your mailbox, um, mm-hmm. and that's what I don't enjoy. Yeah. Also, I mean, you the government. Um, or the postal service lays claim to your mailbox. So even if you pay for and set up the mailbox, it's still their their property. Um, as far as I know, I, I believe that's um, that's what they will claim. So that also drives me nuts. Like if I pay for the mailbox, it's mine, not yours. And apparently, if you put a Christmas card in someone's mailbox without paying postage, you could technically be uh, uh, arrested. Um, and I was not told this until after the fact. So. <laughs> But it's fine. Uh, got it. Got away with it. Um, all right. Let's get into some rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, the first one is I'm, I'm sure you would agree that American culture uh, is unique. It has a lot of great aspects to it. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. So when we t- when we talk about the Red Deluxe album from Taylor Swift, oh, why would you also agree that that is uh, I? In, in a sense, a cornerstone of our unique and incredible American culture. No. Why not? not. Uh, well, if, if you want to really get into this, I mean, you could say, pick a random Nickelback album and say, oh, that's a cornerstone of American society. But, but it's not as iconic as the Red Deluxe album. Is it, let's, though? Let's make that concession. Taylor Swift sure. is better than Nickelback. Um. I'm going to abstain from making comment on that just because I'm not sure what I believe on that question. So it's better, okay. better just to remain quiet. But so just big picture, Taylor Swift, you're not a fan. No, no, I'm not. Okay. Glad, glad we got that out of the way. I just had to ask. It's a, uh, yeah. it's a question well, from the fans. <laughs> if you've seen my tweets ever, then you would know I'm not a fan. I know, but I had to ask, you know, have to get it on the record here. Um, if you had one, this this will be fun. If you had a big billboard or a TV spot, like at the Super Bowl or something, or in Iowa during election season, what is the one message, the one short, concise message that you would most want to get out to people? Oh, that's difficult. Um, I would say it's a tie between um, speed camera tickets are unconstitutional and the postal service needs to be eliminated. Okay. Uh, if, if you were creative, you could probably wrap both of those into one message. 
I probably could. I could just like I could do like a bullet point of things destroying America, and I would just focus on those two. Maybe <laughs> I throw Taylor Swift. Um, but as courtesy to you, I think I would I would just leave that out and focus on on the the speed camera ticket, the speed cameras, and uh, the postal service. I appreciate that. Um, what are some of the issues, or just one issue, however many you think? What do you think is coming down the road? Looking into the future, if you had a crystal ball, what are some of the issues that uh, that are coming down the road? Um, I think um, I think things related to privacy, especially with with technology being as as prevalent as it is, and it's only only trending even more so in that direction. Um, and I know there was there was a lot of stuff that came out recently with um, something related to WikiLeaks, and I think it was Fault Seven. I didn't pay too much attention to that, but um, from the very little I've heard, it, it sounds even more um, Orwellian than was previously thought, as far as the things the CIA can do with your phone. So I think those issues will continue to manifest themselves, and um, I do think that's something where libertarians and even um, I mean most conservatives, I would say, if you're a constitutional conservative, then you would you would probably side with libertarians on um on privacy issues um i think that will continue to be more and more prevalent as you know whether it be through leaks or just public opinion um developing based on what's come out with snowden and other you know other things wikileaks has released um i think that's gonna that's just gonna blow up and be even more so in the the public discourse just because i mean the I don't know, it's it's just absurd. Like recently with this, the uh, the serial killer on the loose in Cleveland right now, mm. um, which is wonderfully only an hour away from me. Um, like all the things that we know, the NSA and the FBI can do with our phones. Yet they cannot track down a guy who murdered someone on Facebook Live, and they have his license plate number and his car, which to me is just the most incredible failure on behalf of law enforcement. Right. If they're unable to track this guy down anytime soon, um, that's just. I mean, you see, especially all the state troopers and um, I believe at least in Ohio, they, they have license plate scanners. I actually just saw an officer earlier today driving up and down lanes of a parking lot with a license plate scanner for some unknown reason. Um, but they still can't seem to find this guy and they have his license plate number in his car and they have his phone. Um, they talk to him on the phone, but they can't track him down, um, which just seems like a misuse of those um, sort of spying resources that governments tend to have and with all the technology sharing that goes on between the feds and state and local police departments, I would think that they would have come up with some way to, to deal with that. Right. Um, but you know, they can, they can listen to our phone calls and collect all the metadata in the world, but they can't find somebody who murdered someone on Facebook live. Um, and it just seems like a waste of those kind of resources that should be sparking some public outcry. Hopefully after they catch in and bring this individual to justice, um, I would hope that that would be a conversation we have about, just you have this technology and you abuse it, but you can't use it for something that I think 99.9% of the population um, would agree is completely just. You might get some hardcore and caps that would disagree with, with that. But you know, then again, they'll probably disagree with anything. Yeah. A, a conversation I'm sure they're looking forward to having. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you agree with your sister that we need to, uh, to save the bees? Uh, sure. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, let's talk about books. Okay. Unless you're like, uh, Tabitha Laren, I'm sure you have some good ones. What are some books that you would recommend books Hmm. that influence you the most? Let's say, uh, that, that book I read about FDR way early on, we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, I would definitely, 
I would definitely recommend that. I cannot remember the name of the author specifically. I believe I believe the last name was Folsom. I'm not 100% sure on that. I'll look it up and um, put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's um, the book was called New Deal or Raw Deal. Um, and I highly recommend that. It's, it's an incredibly informative um, look at just that whole era, which tends to be glamorized by um, not even just progressives, just people in general seem to have this infatuation with Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and he's typically listed among the top five presidents in our history, which mm-hmm. um, greatly offends me personally. Um, that, that, would I, that one I would definitely recommend. Um, another I would recommend, not so much, um, not a political book, as actually as a fiction book, would be um, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. That's one of my favorite fiction books, which um, I think I've read that through two or three times, actually. The movie was very subpar, um, but the book was fantastic. As they so typically I, I would, are. Yeah. Well, in most cases, I would agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, that movie in particular was was very subpar, um, but no movie adaptation flop can quite match that of The Hobbit 1, 2, and 3. But I won't get into that either. Tell us how you really feel, Tex. Yeah. Oh, that should not exist. What about a book? Uh, if, if you were giving someone a book, what, what's what's the th- book that you would give them? Let's give you some of uh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. It's a good one. Um, yeah, I'm actually only about two thirds of the way done with that one. I've been really slow with reading through that one. But um, I think that's just a fantastic summary of, of free market economics and how to defend it. Um, and it's it's pretty understandable, too. I, I don't think it would go over the average person's head at all. Um, so I would highly recommend that. Um, if I was going to give away a book, I, w- I would give that one away. Very cool. Um, my last question before we wrap up, this is always an interesting one because, as you know, uh, especially with Twitter and Facebook, there's a lot of information that gets out every day, a lot of news that happens every day. <laughs> What does your, how do you tame all of that? What does your media consumption diet kind of look like? What are the sources that you go to? Do you get your news from Twitter or social media or, or, or what just, what does that look like? How do you stay informed? Um, I do get most of my news from, um, from Twitter, not so much Facebook, just because the, the crowd of people on Facebook is um, not quite really my style. Um, sure. More or less, but um I do not watch any TV news at all. So I, I do my best to avoid whether it be Fox, CNN, any of those. I just, they drive me nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, CNN spends all their time talking about like missing planes and then Fox <laughs> just like, yeah, we bombed someone. Yee, yee. You know, that sort of thing. Um, it's been a while since a missing plane though. It has, but I'm sure they'll find a way to talk about one. <laughs> uh, I think the last time I watched CNN, they had been talking about, like I turned it on in the morning and they were talking about, some missing plan. I don't even remember which one it was. There were a lot last year that went missing. Um, and then I turned it on again in the evening and they were just saying the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Like the waiting on more updates. Like, I don't know if they spent the eight hours in between there talking about it. They probably did. And then Fox news is just insufferable. So I don't, I don't bother with that. So I, I tend to stick to, to just Twitter. Um, I do have a subscription to the wall street journal, um, online edition, which I do read every morning. Um, which is a pretty respectable publication in my opinion. So I, I think I can trust most of the things they report on, but Twitter, um, tw- I do think Twitter is a really good source, even though you get some, um, some random accounts tweeting out things about, uh, like tornado drills being Sharia law or something like that. Um, if you can, if you can sort through that and just stick to, to people that tend to know what they're talking about, I think you can get pretty much all the news you need off of Twitter. And I, I really do like the, 
the instant nature of Twitter and you're mm-hmm. really up to date. Like I don't like if you want to know something that's going on, you just refresh your Twitter feed and you'll find out right then and there. Um, regardless of you know something CNN and Fox might choose to ignore, but um, you know Twitter is probably not going to ignore it. Sometimes that can be good. Sometimes that can be bad. But um, yeah, Twitter Twitter is my favorite news source. More specifically, you find out what people are most mad about at that moment. Yes. Yeah. Twitter is um, can also be like the worst part about the internet. <laughs> um, although I I managed to completely avoid Reddit and 4chan and all that, so I can't really. Mm demonstratively say that it's the worst part of the internet but it, it can be up there um there were some interesting easter tweets going on oh, yeah. yesterday which um yeah they were interesting so you gotta take everything with a grain of salt but um yeah I'm, I'm kind of addicted to twitter and i don't know if i'll be able to shake that anytime soon i left it for six or seven days and it felt great um, wow but then i got back on and i was instantly reminded why i left so <laughs> It was challenging, but you're still there, right? I'm still there, and I've I've thought about yeah. taking another break, but I I don't know because I feel like it's it's the ultimate like FOMO, the fear of missing. Like I feel like I'm gonna miss yeah. something big that ha- that that six or seven days I was not um, informed on almost anything going on, and I and I read yeah. the news in the morning, but the part that I was missing w- was uh, how people are reacting to it. Oh, I, all the hot takes. Yeah, all the hot takes. But I, I also find some of the more moderate kind of views on things interesting. Like, you know, what do people? How, how are they perceiving it? I guess is really uh, what what I think can be interesting sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. That's um, you get a you can get pretty much any opinion on the planet on any given issue on Twitter. Um, sports Twitter is interesting. I don't know if you're a sports person, but no. sports Twitter is always. Um, sort of a dumpster fire so that's entertaining to keep up on i mean just the 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 sports fan base in general is uh, they have a lot of opinions <laughs> yeah that's true i always like it when sports like people whose entire like following is based on sports decide to get super political with like no warning and then you just look at the replies and it's like it becomes a dumpster fire yeah, yeah. <laughs> like instant dumpster fire sports journalist goes political um, well, very cool. So th- those are good sources, and and I agree with the no TV news. I don't have cable, and it's a wonderful decision that I made. Um, part of it was because I can't afford cable, but that's you know. Whatever. Um, so before we end here, and before we talk about where people can find you on the internet, um, w- do you have a request or a question that you would like um, to ask of? the people listening no, like no guarantee that you'll get a quality response or any response at all. But do you have a question or a request? Yes. Um, if you're one of those people who likes Taylor Swift, I just want to know why, like what about that sound appeals to you? Is it the, like the, ugh, I don't know. Get into it. Um, <laughs> is it like the five words per chorus or per song, like simplicity or laziness, however you want to interpret that, or yeah, I, I just I want to know why in general. I really I don't <laughs> understand that. So that would be my my number one question. It's just why do those people like that person? Okay, In- interesting, interesting yeah. use of uh, of the question. Mm-hmm. All right, Swifties, get into <sighs> action. <laughs> Sounds like a cult. So where can they tweet you with their responses? Where can they find you on uh, on social media? 
my username on everything is Tex Fisher, T-E-X-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Very important you had the C. Um, so Twitter, uh, you can always harass me on Twitter. And then you should definitely follow me on Instagram. Um, Instagram is like my, my baby. So Great captions. Yeah. You can add me on Facebook if you want, but I'm probably not going to say anything there. So Twitter and Instagram are your best bets. Yeah, I don't respond to friend requests on Facebook anymore. Yeah, I've been getting a lot of bots lately. It's it's difficult. So I'll get like I'll wake up one morning and be like, oh, ten friend requests. Wow, what happened? And I'll look, and they're all people who just set up their account today with one picture. And it's like, oh, great. <laughs> yep, a lot of Italian supermodels. <laughs> Italian supermodels. Well, Tex, yeah. th- thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope this was uh, an enjoyable uh, time for you, even though I, I, I pressed you on uh, on what I thought were some important issues. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on and um, and really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. I want to say thank you to Tex one more time for coming on the show. And thank you for listening, especially if you've been listening to the these episodes for the past few weeks. I've been seeing a lot of tweets of these uh, episodes and it seems like you're enjoying it. Um, if you have any feedback, I'd appreciate it. You can find me across social media at Stephen underscore Perkins, except for Facebook, where I was lucky enough to snag facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins. No underscore needed. You can also check out the other podcasts that are on the Outset Network by going to outsetmagazine.com slash podcasts with an S. Uh, we have shows like An Acerbic Review by Holmes Librand as well as Maliberty by Caleb Franz. It's a great little great little cauldron of, of liberty-minded podcasts that we have going on. And I don't really know why I use the word cauldron, but it seemed fitting. Um, I really appreciate it if you would give this show a rate and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And until we talk again next week, take care. God bless. God bless.